We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. Good morning. You may know Ben Jealous as a civil rights leader, former president of the NAACP, its youngest president ever when he was named in 2008. You may know him as the Democratic candidate for governor of Maryland in 2018, who failed to unseat incumbent Republican Larry Hogan. Maybe you know that Jealous was born and grew up in California, in part because his African-American mother and white father left Baltimore after they married. Interracial marriage was not legal in Maryland until 1967. But many of the stories Jealous tells in his new book, including the summers he spent with his maternal grandparents in West Baltimore, are rooted in Maryland. The book is called Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, A Parable of American Healing. And Ben Jealous joins us by Zoom to talk about it. Welcome back to On the Record. Thank you. It's good to be with you, Sheila. Let's start with the bullets. You make the point several times that most Americans have the wrong idea about who is most at risk of dying by gun. Yes, you know, it's um, it's just a fact. I stumbled across it when I was in Oxford as a graduate student, and I was concerned about the surge in Black teen suicide in the 90s. And I was there staring at the FBI crime stats. And what struck me was that the largest cohort of people dying at the wrong end of a gun was not black boys and men, say, between 15 and 30 dying of homicide. It was white men over 55 dying of suicide. I literally picked up the phone. I called my dad. I said, Dad, I started this research freaked out about young black men like me. And now I'm more freaked out about old white men like you. I shouldn't laugh. It's not at all funny. But the, but, but you have the, to laugh about these things. You know, if somebody's worked in criminal justice reform, you got to find a little raise of humor in the midst of a whole lot of tragedy. And it is part of a larger case you make that blacks and whites, especially poor whites, are going through many of the same struggles, but racism often hides it. Yeah, I mean, look, in Baltimore, just look at the history of opiate addiction. Most of my lifetime, we talked about opiate addiction uh, as this criminal scourge, and we needed to lock all these addicts up. And then something happened in the country. We had so many young people dying of opiate addiction that sheriffs across the country, in the Midwest, the Mid-South, throughout the country, started releasing the photographs of the corpses of people who had died of opiate addiction to the media. And what the country was forced to confront was that numerically, there were more whites than blacks dying from opiate addiction. And suddenly the policy shifted from this is a criminal problem we have to address with more incarceration to this is a health problem of addiction and we need to address it with rehabilitation. And that's ultimately the type of common sense solutions that we need, but you only get there if you make the full face of the problem visible. Well, Attention to the 1619 Project has created a shorthand in many of our minds that this country was always about race. But you make the point that today's idea of race didn't start to gel until a century after the first settlers. That's exactly right. Until a century after 1619, even, there had been settlers in other part of the Americas from Europe, obviously, much longer. But my family goes back in Virginia to the very beginning, as far as we can tell. I literally 
carry the DNA of a man known as the Adam of Virginia, William Randolph. I descend from Thomas Jefferson's grandmother by the other grandchildren, if you will. I even I even figured out writing this book that I'm cousins to Robert E. Lee. That one that one made me stop writing for a week. But what you you know what you realize when you start to look at the chronology is that the modern barbaric notion of race, this idea of color as a caste system, is created in the early 1700s, where the American experiment in Virginia begins a century earlier. My grandmother would often call me to wrestle with that fact by saying, never forget that the earliest rebellions were not slave rebellions, they were colonial rebellions. My college professor, the first person to teach me politics in college, made the same comment. And that was part of the of the origin of this book, was my wrestling with a young man. What did that really mean, and what was the significance of it? It's organizer, civil rights leader, venture capitalist Ben Jealous, on the record on WIPR. I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about his new book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, a parable of American healing. That title is also something your grandmother, Mamie Todd, a social worker, said all the time. You write that for decades it was a riddle for you. I'd like listeners to hear how you describe some of that befuddlement. Would you read from page 24? Never forget our people were always free. She'd offer as a diversion from the subject at hand. She often seemed to insert it as an offhand closer to a conversation about some sensitive aspect of our family's history in slavery about which she did not want to hear any more discussion. When I was a kid, it made my brain hurt. It just didn't make any sense. When I was a teenager, I decided to challenge her head on. What are you talking about, Mimi? Three of your Four grandparents were born into slavery. The fourth was a white man. Your own sister says raped one of your grandmothers. Who was free? The rapist? She just stared at me like she pitied me. She would never say a curse word. But by the look on her face, I'd say she thought me either an idiot or an Ultimately, I relented. Challenging it seemed as cruel and futile is trying to convince a devout nun that Mary wasn't a virgin. And there are other conversations with your grandmother like that that you recount. And then after Henry Louis Gates Jr. analyzed your family's DNA, you say you got a glimpse into your grandmother's riddle. I did. It actually started with confronting this situation of a white man that kept insisting he was white and yet saying words that he believed were a sound, but an associate of his actually took to Google and figured out that this sound was in fact words. And he was actually uttering an old Irish curse. And that meant that this white man was Irish. And in his experience, that sound had been made without questioning by the men in his family who had long since forgotten the curse, let alone that they were speaking Old Irish. Well, my grandmother, it occurred to me when she said that her grandmother said the same thing, her great-grandmother said the same thing, when I saw my sister begin to repeat it, 
was likely repeating something unquestioned that had been passed down by previous generations. Well, it turns out that my grandmother's maternal line starts with a pirate woman from Madagascar. Henry Louis Gates Jr. helped me figure that out. And well, while that saying didn't make any sense when my grandmother said it, it certainly would have made sense when a pirate first said it. And what would a pirate woman say to her children and grandchildren born into slavery? But never forget, our people were always free. And how would she say it? She would say it to incite thoughts of insurrection. So it was sort of a rallying cry that your grandmother, the family griot, was passing on. She, Mamie Todd, earned her graduate degree in social work at the University of Pennsylvania at a time when Maryland wouldn't admit blacks into its state graduate schools, but would pay for their tuition out of state. Tell us a little bit more about your your grandmother. Yeah, yeah, she was fierce. She was literally the uh, secretary in an informal group that was Clarence Mitchell, the NAACP's great lobbyist in Washington, Juanita Mitchell, his wife, the head of the local NAACP in Baltimore, and Perrin Mitchell, their brother, the congressman, if you will, before Kwesi Mfume's first time in, in Baltimore. And they were all planning the implementation of the war on poverty in Maryland. My grandmother, in part because of the influence of the Mitchells and her degree from the University of Maryland School of Social Work, became the head of social policy implementation for the Maryland state government. She was one of the first Black women to be an executive, if you will, in the Maryland state government in Annapolis. And um, this book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, in many ways was me really confronting this other riddle she left me, which is she was always on fire to end poverty, it seemed, as much as maybe even more than she was on fire to end racism. And so part of the digging of this book was trying to figure out what was it in my grandmother that really drove her to be so fiercely committed to ending poverty for everybody. She could talk with passion about the poverty amongst poor white people in Western Maryland or on the Eastern Shore uh, and the need to end it. Uh, just the same as she could in the next breath about the, the need to end it in East Baltimore or West Baltimore. And you tell us about your grandmother's grandfather, who was born a slave and built a populist movement in Virginia in the 1870s. Tell us a little bit more about Edward David Bland. Late 1870s, early 1880s, he was the leader of the Black Republicans in Virginia. And the legacy, the greatest legacy, perhaps, of those men as leaders in the Virginia government was the creation of the free public schools. And when Reconstruction ended with the Hayes-Tilden Compromise of 1876, the terror of the Ku Klux Klan was unleashed. And, you know, and also the former Confederates were reenfranchised. And as the old plantation owners started to reassert their dominance over the politics of Virginia, they made it very clear they intended to shut down the free public schools. What they didn't count on was that white men would rebel against that, that the working class whites of Virginia had gotten used to being able to send their children to free public schools. And even though they had been started by governments dominated by black legislators like Edward David Bland, 
they um, didn't care. They just wanted to maintain their schools. And so they started a party called the readjusters. If the, you know, if the old plantation owners were saying that they couldn't afford the civil war debt and the free public schools, they said they, they demanded readjust the terms of the civil war debt so we can keep our schools. And my grandmother's grandfather saw this white populist party forming and he went to their leader, a former Confederate general named William B. Mahone, who would ultimately be written out of the Confederate history of Virginia, even though he was Robert E. Lee's most valued protege at one point. Uh, but because after the war, as a Southern Railroad owner, he decided to join his workers in their populist rebellion rather than suppress it. And my grandmother's grandfather went to him and they struck a bargain. And my grandmother's grandfather led uh, Blacks into the readjuster party. And they ultimately became a majority Black party led by a former Confederate general and a former slave, my grandmother's grandfather. They took over the Virginia government. Uh, the governorship, both senators, the both houses of the state legislature. They saved the future of free public education. They radically expanded Virginia Tech, making it the working man's rival at the time to the University of Virginia. They created Virginia State, the first public HBCU south of the Mason-Dixon, even before Morgan, even before Bowie uh, or Coppin. And they um, abolished the public whipping post and they abolished the poll tax. And the interesting thing, thing there that really struck me, Joe, in writing this book was, you know, I'd always been taught that when the poll tax was woven into the Virginia State Constitution in 1902, it was simply a response to the power of Blacks in the post-Civil War period. But this rebellion, if you will, this populist uprising happened 15 years after the Civil War and much closer to the, the poll tax being woven into the Virginia state constitution. And when it did, it did not just disenfranchise 80% of blacks and it did, but it also disenfranchised 50% of whites. And what you realize is that that state constitutional amendment, the poll tax, in addition to greatly diminishing the political power of blacks, it also outlawed the multiracial populist movement that was much more current than the Civil War had been, uh, and that had seized power, in fact, complete control for a time of the Virginia state government. We need to take a short pause in our conversation with civil rights leader Ben Jealous. We're talking about his new book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free a parable of American healing. He'll be discussing it Saturday afternoon at the Pratt Library downtown. Details about that in a few minutes. When we're back, tensions. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. In 2012, after Trayvon Martin, an African-American teenager, was killed by a neighborhood watch coordinator in a gated community, the Florida town where it happened was a tinderbox of racial tension. Ben Jealous tells the story in his new book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, A Parable of American Healing. As president of the NAACP, Jealous was asked to help calm the situation. 
The longtime local NAACP leader recommended the city of Sanford replace its police chief. Ben Jealous, as you tell us about the changes Sanford police made, even before the shooter was acquitted, you describe the work as, quote, that listening, that empathy, that mutual self-discovery and reckoning, close quote. I think I understand listening and empathy, but when you're talking about policing, unpack mutual self-discovery and reckoning. There was a cauldron, if you will, in the middle of the cauldron. Sanford itself had become a cauldron. We had violent white supremacists pouring in from other places saying that they were protecting the white community. We had radical, extreme black nationalists coming in as well, fomenting tension. And yet in the midst of that maelstrom, there was a crisis room at City Hall and the command center, if you will, was the mayor and the city manager. The mayor was a white Republican. As I recall, he was a local realtor and the city manager was a black Democrat. And all of a sudden their city was being ripped apart and they needed to figure out how to hold it together. And there was just no ignoring the hard facts. The hard facts were really laid out by the NAACP president who had spent a quarter century either as a sheriff's deputy uh, in, in the local community or the NAACP president or both. And he just looked at them and he, and he said, look, Goldsboro, which was the black community, kind of like West Baltimore, old, segregated, proud, its own history, had actually, had actually been its own town and had been forcibly subsumed by Sanford some time before. And so uh, the police really treated it like a colony in an extreme way. We had seen police officers not even get out of their car, just literally race around the streets yelling at people. And the police chief, it was hard to, to not find fault with. The city, small by Florida standards, had made national news twice uh, for white men killing black men and ultimately, as would be the case in this case, getting away with it. And uh, on top of all that, the man who was the police chief, when he wasn't the police chief, had been the head of the local police academy. So there were literally for, for like decades. So there wasn't anybody on the force that he didn't train in some way. And that's why the sheriff said that, that uh, he needed to go. But for the mayor, it meant spending hours just listening to people in Goldsboro. It meant really trying to understand how the other half of Sanford lived and what their experience was and why it was the conviction of the pastors that their lives were apparently less worse, you know, worth less than a dog to local law enforcement because a man had recently killed a dog and gotten two years. But here you had had a white man kill a black man and get nothing. And then the case of George Zimmerman, long before he was acquitted, you know, he had been allowed to live weeks and months without even being charged. And you could see the mayor changing, his heart opening, his mind wrestling, and ultimately his and ultimately his spirit settling on the fact that he was going to have to courageously reform law enforcement in Sanford if uh, Sanford would ever be at peace, let alone live up to the you know very American promise of being a place with liberty and justice for all. This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cass speaking with 
the organizer and civil rights leader Ben Jealous about his new book, Never Forget, Our People Were Always Free, A Parable of American Healing. He'll be at the Pratt Library Central Branch on Cathedral Street at 3 p.m. Saturday. You know, as a white reader, I felt some whiplash careening from powerful examples of solidarity between whites and blacks to horrific examples of racism, complete lack of solidarity. I mean, it left me a little breathless. Can you weave those strains together for us? You know, I mean, it's it's what life is like when you're black. You know, you're always looking for moments of solidarity where you really feel like you're a part of this country and this country is holding up its end of the bargain the way that, you know, you try to hold up yours just going through your life, you know, being a good citizen, being a good employee or business leader. And then all of a sudden, you know, you can come home to a call that the local police killed a kid in your church or in your family or your own son. And so I try to tell the book in a way that was candid and and that was open without without casting blame, without you know casting aspersions, just uh, giving a window into what it's like, what it was like for me to be a young black man in Harlem, for instance, or in New York City when I was in college, or in Baltimore when I was a kid. My goal, Sheila, in writing the book was to give you know to create a book that my white uncle who is a lovely man and a good person and also a very awkward moment in my long you know friendship with my uncle voted for Donald Trump in 2016 a book that I could hand to him to help him understand what it was like to be you know to walk in the shoes of his nephew a book if you will that if Martin Luther King was still alive today and he would be in his 90s I guess could hand to his old jailer in Birmingham, the one that he suggested join the movement because that jailer was paid so little. But if that old man, the old white man in Alabama hadn't gotten it by now, that he might be able to read this and understand that our people have more in common than they don't. And there's an urgent need for all of us to come together. You're starting a new job as head of the Sierra Club in two weeks. And until a couple months ago, you were president of People for the American Way and its foundation, which were founded to push back against right-wing extremism. Why the shift to the environment? You know, it's, when I was at the NAACP, I launched our climate justice program, and people asked me the same thing then. And what I pointed out to them was, that was actually the number one issue for the young people at the NAACP. I've been an environmentalist my entire life. I was raised in a civil rights family. And, uh, and so it's always been part of me. But at this moment, this moment in history, there's an existential fight for the future of the planet. There's an urgent need to right old wrongs like the incinerator that still blows over Baltimore. And there's a need to finally build an environmentalist movement that is as inclusive as the rainbow of Americans who support the cause of of clean air and clean water and a sustainable planet for all of us. I think there's part of me also as I'm turning 50. This moment of kind of reflection, it's exciting to me to go lead on an issue where we might have a real chance in this hyper-partisan moment to actually unite the young people of this country. You know, when you look at the issue of concern about climate change and the preservation of the environment, there are legions of 
of young people who who identify as Republicans, not just Democrats who support that issue. And obviously um, you know, the biggest group of young people don't have any party at all. They, they vote, but they just don't believe in parties. And my hope is that we can really un- unite them around the cause to uh, uh, save the environment. Climate change is real. It's having an impact on everything. And at least amongst the young people, there is a, a, an overwhelming majority who are ready to do something about it. What I would also say, Sheila, is we're living at a moment where we don't have to make the Hobbesian choice about building a stronger economy or sustaining the planet. Uh, new technologies have come online that have made it clear that we really can create more jobs saving the planet uh, than uh, we do continuing to destroy it. And that excites me too. If readers take away one thing from Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, what would you want that to be? I would want people to understand that we can actually pull this country together. There's no reason to believe that race and racism as we know it will, has to always be with us because it hasn't always been with us. Our country started before race and racism as we know it, and we can certainly prosper beyond it. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you. Ben Jealous's new book is Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, a parable of American healing. He'll be in conversation with C4, Clarence Mitchell IV, at the Pratt Library at 3 p.m. Saturday, 400 Cathedral Street. We have a link to register at the On the Record page at wypr.org. I'm Sheila Cast. Glad you're with us on the record. Join us again tomorrow. <laughs>